what are you going to do during this week of September that we're talking about if we're just going to go out there and try and kill a cow? You know, my philosophy on on hunting cows, especially in that, you know, 15th of September through the end of September, I hunt them just like I hunt a bull. And if I'm going to use my calls, uh, I'm going to call to a bull. And so many times I'm doing that, I've had cows come in first. Uh, they walk right by in the shooting lane. You know, how many times have we had got busted by a cow that came in before a bull? So if I'm hunting cows, I'm probably going to not call as aggressively, but I'm still going to use calls to locate. Uh, and then I'm going to set up and, and try to call elk in. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Mr. Corey Jacobson, welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing, James? Good, good. We're uh, we're kind of getting a jump on things. I'm sure you do a, a similar thing with uh, with your show. But once hunting season starts, I'm gone for for quite a long time. Um, usually several months, and uh, try to get these these shows recorded ahead of time. But I don't think it's ever too early to start learning and planning for archery season. Absolutely. And I'm almost in panic mode now because it's coming so quickly. We're just a handful of weeks away from, from archery elk season. And I agree with you, though. It's it's become a year-round obsession for me. And I don't think there's ever a, a month in the year that you can't learn something about elk hunting. Well, and you can dedicate your entire year to learning, to improving, and never get there. And you can do that for your entire life and never get to where you want to be there. There is no perfection in this game. Not only that, but yeah, you feel like a beginner. It seems like every year on September 1st, I go into it with the same, you know, obviously there's a level of confidence from the preparation you put in and everything, but there's also that, that level of doubt that, you know, it's elk hunting. It's tough. It's uh, you're, you're going out there and hoping that the animals cooperate and they very rarely do. So no matter how much hard work we put in, there's still always that what if question there. You know, Michael Batista and I were talking about this at a, at a seminar that we were teaching earlier this year, and we, we both feel like there is this big start over factor at the beginning of every season. It, it's not like riding a bicycle. <laughs> why, why is that? What, um, and, you know, these are 
guys like like you and Michael that hunt, you know, a lot every season, you know, it's part of your profession. Like, why is there a learning curve every single year to get back into it? I think, you know, there's, there's a couple things. First off, I'm glad that there, there's a learning curve, but I'm also glad that the elk have the same uh, short-term memory because, you know, the elk at the beginning of the season are different than they are at the end of the season. But then by the next season, it seems like those, you know, a lot of the elk have forgotten some of the lessons they learned the, the year before about pressure and, and how they have to react to that. And so, you know, that's good. It gives us time to kind of adjust and, and get the cobwebs out. But I think really what it comes down to is elk are a tough animal to hunt. We've had the best plans, done the best scouting. Everything seems great. And then uh, old man Murphy throws a throws another law at us and something goes wrong. And so the, there's always that in the back of our mind that no matter how prepared we are, that no matter uh, how much scouting we've done, how confident we are, there's still that doubt in the back of our mind that it doesn't take a whole lot to turn this thing completely backwards and, and go from uh, anticipated success to, oh my gosh, I can't even find an elk right now. Yeah. And, and even when you do find that elk, for us, that elk can become the only thing in the world for us. Like that is our pure focus, but that's not necessarily the pure focus for that animal. Um, he has a lot of inputs from his environment that are way beyond our control. And I think that that's something that, that hunters forget, especially early in the season is like, there's more going on in this animal's life than me right now, even though he's the only thing going on in my life. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, we're a predator and elk are, they, they spend every minute of every day of the year surviving and they're at constant, they're in, they're in constant threat from predators, you know, whether it's two-legged or four-legged or otherwise, uh, they are surviving against nature every minute that they're out there. Whereas we go out there and, you know, we don't hunt for an elk every minute of the year. So we don't have the, the same advantage they do at avoiding us. Uh, but yeah, it's just, you know, there, there's so many factors that go into it. You have to find the elk, you know, that's the first part of it. And then you have to hunt the elk and finding them can be difficult, but you know, they aren't necessarily trying to keep from being found. They're just trying to stay alive. And when you actually start hunting them, you know, it's so important to, to recognize you have to overcome every sense that the elk has if you want to have a chance of successfully hunting them because they're using every sense they have to stay alive. Well, and this episode is coming out on September 13th, which has got to be right in there with my favorite day of of uh, archery season and honestly that that whole week like the 13th through the 19th even the 20th depending on the year um, those are my days where I am the most confident that I'm going to be able to call in not only able but a lot of bulls for my clients and it's not uncommon for me to call in you know, 25 or 30 bulls that week. And that might be more bulls than I call in for the rest of the entire season. So just so everybody knows, me, this is just after the 4th of July here that, that me and Corey are talking, but this episode is coming out um, on September 13th. And we want it to come out then because that's the week of the season that we're going to focus on. But before we get to that, um, Corey, if you wouldn't mind, can you kind of talk us through the phases of, of the rut 
or even the the early archery seasons you know we've got some archery seasons that start in in, uh, in the middle of august yeah and you know i think that that's really important to to understand the phases of the rut to understand the elk's behavior and the elk's need during each of those phases uh, and that'll lead us into i think why that week is both of our favorite you know that 13th to 20th time frame uh, you and i talked before the show that's just that's the prime time for if you're wanting to call in elk i think and and hopefully a generalized overview of the seasons will will lead us into that and explain why we like it so much but you know you mentioned season start middle of august you've got nevada's got an august season for our tree you've got utah that opens in august uh and other states you know i think colorado now has has uh somewhat standardize their season so it doesn't shift as much and end up on August 23rd or 24th like it sometimes would. Uh, Oregon still shifts a little bit and you know sometimes you end up with the that last week of August is your opening week but that's a tough time to hunt because you've got elk that during the summer the bulls are in a bachelor group and they're spending time together. They're They're tolerant of each other but about that 10th to 15th of August most of those mature bulls leave that bachelor group and they go off by themselves. And the reason for that is they're, they're starting to get annoyed with each other. They don't want, they recognize each other as competition. They recognize that the rut's about to start. Uh, the, the natural instinct for them is to gather cows during the rut to breed. And first to middle of August is just a, it's a time where there's a transition where they don't want to be around another bull and they go to these little i call them the bull bedrooms you know they just go to this tiny little patch by themselves they have feed and water usually right there so they don't have to move hardly at all and they start you know shedding the velvet they rake their antlers uh, on trees and it helps them shed the velvet it builds up the neck muscles and gets them ready for the rut so you'll go into these areas sometimes and see all these trees just rubbed up within a tiny little area thinking, oh, this is where the rut takes place. But that actually, there might not even be an elk within 10 miles of there when the actual rut starts. That's just where they stage before they go and start looking for cows. So really, if you're hunting that 15th through 25th or so time frame of August, a lot of times for those mature bulls, they're going to be by themselves. They're going to be hard to find. Uh, but with that being said, they... They are very territorial and they're very irritable. That testosterone starting to flow and it can be difficult to uh, for them to turn down a challenge. So calling can work during that time, but it's going to be, you're going to hear one bugle every three days type of a thing and get in and maybe be able to have a, a really quick aggressive in, encounter with that bull. Uh, but finding them is going to be more difficult. Water is going to be your friend. I think at that point, uh, water is probably, in most states, their primary need right then. From there, you transition into the younger bulls will start doing the same thing. For, the, for a lot of them, though, those really young bulls are going to still be with the cows, or they might be bachelored up in a group of three or four little raghorns or spikes. Uh, but then after that, so about the, the 5th of September or so is typically when we start seeing uh, bulls really go on the search for cows and you'll find i mean even the 30th of august you'll see a six-point bull with cows and think wow they're already herded up you know things are already happening and a lot of the times that's not the herd bull that's a bull that is a, a subdominant bull he might still be a six point he might be a 
you know, giant, but there's another bigger bull there that's probably going to come and take over that herd at some point. Uh, it's usually around September 5th when those bigger bulls start wandering, they start looking for the cows. They're aggressive then, but they're still not fired up to the point where they're bugling constantly, where you can locate them with bugles. Uh, your first bugle gets answered, you know, the second that it hits the mountainside. Uh, they're still going to be a little bit tight-lipped. Uh, you've still got some hot weather sometimes that you're dealing with, uh, but they are on the move, so you're going to start seeing them a lot more readily. You're going to see tracks and sign of bulls a little bit more than you did the week before. Uh, and calling can be can be effective. They're looking for cows, so a cow call can be effective at getting response from them. And if they feel like there's a, a bull there that's threatening their dominance and he's with the cows, uh, you, can, you can absolutely get them fired up to fight. As you move into the, the next week, you know, from I think the fifth this year falls on a, a Sunday. So that fifth, sixth time frame uh, through like the 11th, you're going to see a lot more bull activity. Uh, you're going to hear more bugles. But then as we get into that next week that you and I talked about, like the 12th through the 18th of September, that's prime time. That is when the bulls are actually fighting. They're establishing dominance. They are building their harems. They are they're actively pursuing uh, a subdominant bull that might have four or five cows to go and run him off and take those four or five cows. Uh, they're, they're building their harems. They're doing everything they can to prepare for the next week, which is the peak rut. And I've always, always felt that the peak rut is triggered uh, by the, by the moon phase, as well as the daylight hours. And I think the two contribute to each other, but uh, this year, the, the fall equinox falls on, I think it's the 22nd of September, it's somewhere in the 21st, 22nd, and they've shown that that's actually what triggers the estrus cycle in the cows, and you know, when a cow comes in estrus, she's ready to be bred, that's when the peak rut kind of kicks off and happens, and it's usually within five to seven days of the fall equinox that the peak rut really kicks in and, and the cows start coming in estrus. So for me, I like to hunt the week leading up to that, which as you and I talked is that 13th through 20th time frame, just because once those cows come in estrus, that is 100% the focus of the bulls. They are focused on breeding the cow that's in estrus. They're not as worried about fighting. They've already established dominance. Yes, absolutely. There's going to be clashes with bulls during that time, but it's more a quick run in, run that bull off, go back to your cows, protect your cows. Uh, you hear the term bugle and run a lot. And a lot of times that's what a herd bull's doing. He's got his cows. He's trying to push them away from another uh, threatening bull. And it can be difficult to call a bull in. It can also be difficult to get in close to a bull using calls. So uh, once that happens, you know, the, the rut happens fairly quickly, usually about eight to 10 days, all the cows end up getting bred or a majority of the cows end up getting bred. And those bigger bulls will a lot of times leave the herd and, and retreat and kind of go off by themselves, uh, depending again on demographics. If you have uh, 10 bulls per 100 cows and there's thousands and thousands of elk, it's going to take those bulls a lot longer to breed the cows. The rut's going to probably last a lot longer. You're going to hear bugles earlier and later throughout the season. Whereas if you're in an area where the, the bull to cow ratio is 40 to 100 and there's only 100 elk in that area, uh, things are going to happen pretty quickly and, and taper off fairly quickly as well. So that's kind of in a nutshell, you know, the, the 
thought process of the elk, the needs of the elk throughout the month of September, you know, the early rut, early season, pre-rut, uh, peak rut, and then into the post rut there. One thing that I'd like to to talk about just for a second, we grew up with a lot of old timer myths about what causes rut activity. And the way I, I would really encourage people to look at it is that an elk should not base when it wants to have its calf off of what the weather's doing in September, <laughs> right? So the, their best guess is to have their calf because the gestation period is, is a set thing. Like how long they're going to be pregnant is set. They need to say, okay, based on the amount of daylight that is coming into my pupil today, I know where I'm at on the calendar of the year and me having a calf, you know, around the third week of May gives it the best opportunity for survival. So when there's this amount of daylight that triggers the cow to come into estrus, the bull smells that now we have peak rut and estrus does not last very long in a cow elk at all. Does it? No, it doesn't. And, and like I said, it's usually a small window when all of the cows come into estrus and you mentioned the daylight entering the, the cow's pupils. And that's really what the fall equinox represents. It's the day where the daylight hours are equal to the, the nighttime hours. And so you have equal amount of darkness and daylight. And, you know, science has shown that that's what triggers that, that estrus cycle. And I mentioned moon phase in there. So it's important to understand and this is not scientific, this is uh, Corey's observations, but it really seems like if you have a full moon leading into the fall equinox, the rut usually kicks in a little bit later. And I think that the full moon contributes to some of the light that's, that's entering those cow's pupils and adds to it and prolongs that until that moon starts tapering away. So I've just noticed on years where there is a full moon from like the 17th through uh, the 25th sometime in there sometimes it's the end of September before the the peak rut really kicks in whereas if you have no moon uh, that that week that we like to hunt that 13th through the 20th usually things will start kicking in a little bit earlier uh, ahead of the fall equinox there so just something to keep in mind and again it's it's nothing scientific but as we try to get an advantage over the elk and try to predict what the rut's going to be and try to figure out what week we want to hunt uh, that's definitely something that I look at uh, in predicting when the, the actual rut's going to happen. You're you're 100% right, Corey, um, at, at least in my observations as well. And a lot of people like to, to war game their season and they'll go, well, this is when the full moon is and I don't want to hunt during the full moon. Look, I don't blame you. I don't really love hunting during a full moon either. Um, don't really love hunting under a new moon for that matter. Um, if I could hunt a waxing quarter moon on September 13th, I think I could probably only hunt elk one day a year and, and fill my tag, but I don't have that luxury. And as a guide, I hunt every single day of the season. So it doesn't matter the weather. It doesn't matter the moon phase. It doesn't matter the day of the rut. I'm going to hunt all of it. And that strategy needs to adapt because I need to give my client the best, the best experience and opportunity that I possibly can. And that's why we're talking about each of these, these weeks of the season as their own thing. But in reality, every single day is going to give us something different. And you need to, to change your game for that. 
So here we are. It's September 13th. We're, uh, we took the week off work. We got to the woods last night, say, for example. And, uh, you know, we've, we've got to jump on it because it's a, it's a Monday. So the weekend warriors are, are back at work. Those, those poor people. Um, what's our plan, Corey? You know, this year, it's, uh, we're going to have a full moon by the end of the week. And so we're going to have a lot of moonlight uh, here for the next week. Uh, even, even on the 13th, we've got a, a half moon. And by the 17th, it's going to look completely full. So it, it comes to full moon pretty quickly. Uh, and like you said, where you hunt every day, you don't get a pick. There, you're going to have hunters during that week of full moon, uh, bright moon activity. You've got to figure out uh, how to give them the best experience. For those of us who are hunting this week, we've got to figure out, is the moon going to be a factor? If so, how is it going to be a factor? And then what do we need to do to, to overcome it? Uh, I think this year, just looking, the full moon hits on the 20th, uh, the actual full moon. It'll be full for four or five days there around the 20th. Uh, but with the fall equinox right there at that same time, 21st, 22nd, I wouldn't be surprised if the peak rut uh, happens a little later this year, you know, that 24th, 25th, rather than maybe the 20th, 21st, it's going to probably be a little bit later. Uh, so that means this week, the 13th through the 20th, uh, might be a touch earlier than what you and I like to hunt uh, as far as the activity on the 13th. But then with that being said, we're going into full moon in the later days. So it's not like it's going to get a whole lot better uh, over the next couple of days. I'm talking about this and making it sound a little bit negative. This is still, in my opinion, probably going to be the best week to hunt this year, uh, the 13th through the 19th time frame. Just keeping in mind, you know, states that I've hunted like Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, uh, even Colorado, somewhat in Oregon. Uh, the moon phase doesn't really have a huge effect on on the hunting uh, as far as the the activity of the elk and the calling of the elk and our opportunities to get shot on shots on the elk you get into states like new mexico and arizona and nevada and utah and the full moon definitely has an effect those elk go in bed down half hour after daylight and they don't talk throughout the day they don't lay in their beds and bugle for the most part they get pretty quiet and they hunker down and they're pretty, you know, they, they're pretty docile during the day, even, even in these times leading up to it. And you add heat into that and it just, it compounds it and makes it worse. But for most of the mountain states, what I've noticed is, yeah, the elk definitely stay out during the night more. Uh, they're going to be able to feed through the night if, if that moon phase, that full moon hits during the nighttime hours where they have actual illuminated nighttime moonlight. They're going to stay out a little bit more during the night. In the morning, they might head back to their bedding areas a little bit earlier. Uh, they might come out a little bit later at night, but they're still going to be fairly active in their bedding areas. And for me, that's honestly my favorite way to hunt them, especially on a full moon, is follow them into those bedding areas, give them time to settle down and kind of relax, and uh, then go in there and, and stir the hornet's nest a little bit. Uh, but again, if you're hunting a mountain state during this week, I would not be all that concerned about the full moon. Just understanding that you might not be able to locate them down low in the meadows uh, two or three hours after daylight. They might already be all the way up the mountain on the backside in their bedding area. Uh, but they're still, when, when elk move, they're moving for a reason and they're utilizing their senses for that movement. So they're still going to move 
with the thermals coming down the mountain. They're going to go up the mountain as the thermals are coming down. They don't want to get to their bedding area and have to sit in that bedding area for two hours while the thermals are still coming down because they're unprotected from, from what's above them during that time. So usually they're going to go and bed in a, a thicker area on a north face where the thermals are going to soon change and come up the mountain, which basically means if they leave their feeding area earlier than normal, they're probably going to move a little bit more slowly getting to their bedding area and linger a little bit longer. So a lot of, lot of things to consider as you plan your attack day by day. Uh, the elk are still going to behave based on, on the wind and the thermals and using their sense of smell. They're still going to go to a bedding area. Uh, in the mountain states, they're probably still going to be active during the middle of the day, maybe even more so than, than they are when there isn't a full moon. So that's, uh, that's kind of my strategy this year is to find elk early, follow them to their bedding areas, and uh, try, to, try to make the magic happen there. One of the big benefits about letting elk settle into their bedding areas for a little while is the other thing that you're allowing to settle is the wind. Because um, typically they're going to get to a bedding area about the time that thermals are switching. And that switch can occur multiple times back and forth for, for a period. You know, you'll get wind that's blowing uphill and downhill as, uh, as the ground temperature is rising and causing those winds to come up for the rest of the day. But if you can just hang out and be patient for a little bit, um, you'll, you'll get that wind a little bit steadier and that'll help you a lot if you're gonna slip into those areas. And there's a good chance that it might not work out today. And if you, if you blow it with the wind, there's, they're probably not gonna come back and bed in that thicket again tomorrow. Um, but if you keep the wind and you blow them out with, with sound or, or sight or something like that, I've seen those all come right back again, but scent is a, is a different reaction. One thing I want to, uh, to ask you about, Corey, just looking at this year, we're in an exceptional drought in the Intermountain West, and um, it's been extremely hot so far this summer. I've seen a bunch of triple-digit days in June, which I've never seen in June here before. I think wildfire is going to be a, a big part of, of our hunting seasons this year. With the smoke that I'm anticipating being in the air, how do you see that affecting elk? <laughs> so I've, I've got a theory on that one, and it, again, is not science, but, you know, we live in Idaho. You're in Oregon. Um, the Northwest has fires every year, and it seems like the last four or five years, it's just become a, a normal that we go out and we hunt in smoke in September. Uh, but last year was was noticeably worse. There were bigger fires in more areas and the smoke was thicker and we had troubles getting close to elk. We didn't have any troubles locating and we found elk just like we normally do, but we couldn't get close to them with calls. We would, you know, our, our typical strategy of moving within 200 yards or so and then firing up the calls and getting them to come running in. Every time we did that last year, it seemed like they would move off 200 or 300 yards and after a few times of that happening, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, elk rely on their sense of smell. That's their number one uh, feature that they use to stay alive every day of the year. Every second of the day, they're taking in through their nose, uh, they're looking for danger. And I've used the example, we walked by a, a dead uh, beef cow one time in Arizona 
and we were 200 yards below it on the hillside and could smell it very strongly. It'd been sitting there in the sun for quite a while, but we had to go up that ridge to get past it to where we were hunting. And as we got within 20 yards of it or so, it was, I mean, dry heaving, even breathing through your mouth, not even taking in anything through your nose. It was almost more than, than you could handle. And I got thinking, I wonder if that's how we smell on a normal day to an elk, because they have, you know, their sense of smell is thousands of times better than ours. And if they can smell that much better, I wonder how bad we smell when they get a whiff of us. And to, to bring that into full circle last year with all of the smoke, I couldn't hardly breathe through my nose last year because of smoke. It just burned my sinuses. And I had a sore throat from breathing that smoke down my throat. And I got thinking, those poor elk with a, a sense of smell that's so much more sensitive than ours, if they're breathing in that smoke and it's hurting my nose and certain my sinuses and throat, it's got to be tearing them up as well. And I think that the smoke actually reduced their ability to sense danger. And because of that, they just didn't take chances. They, you know, if you get in close to them and you're bugling or calling to them, uh, I think they're like, Hey, I've got to see something before I'm even going to take a chance. I'm moving up the hill 300 yards to get to where I feel safe and I can use my eyes and my ears and as we move up the hill and keep calling, they're like, okay, it's getting close. I don't see anything. And they keep moving off. And that just really seemed to be the norm last year, that those elk just wouldn't allow us to get close uh, if they could hear us at all coming, whether it was calling or breaking brush or anything. This year, like you mentioned, it's it's already shaping up to be a, another hot, dry year. And that could spell disaster for wildfires in the in the West. Uh, so I think you know, that's something to consider as well, that that smoke could make it more difficult for us to get aggressive on the calls. We may have to uh, to locate with a bugle and get them to respond and then move in and completely put the calls away if, if uh, we find that they are moving away because they aren't able to sense that danger as it approaches them. That, uh, that molecule that's coming off of decomposing animal is called ethylmercaptan. And it is a human's strongest sense of smell. Um, and the other interesting thing about smell with humans is that it can bypass several steps in our brains to access memory. So there's some, some biologists and some anthropologists who have, who have proposed that we can smell that so well because in our past, we were both predators and prey animals. And, and scavengers in addition to that. So one, we could tell where there was a potential food source, but we could also tell that it was probably something that was going to make us sick. And then we could tell that there was something else that had caused another animal to die in this area. So we needed to be extremely alert. Now, our, our noses don't have as long of a membrane as what an elk has. So we're never going to be able to collect as many of these organic molecules as an elk can to determine the sense that are in our environment. But we are very, very good at detecting this one particular molecule. And I agree. I think that that's a great example of, of how an elk reacts to something that gives us a little bit of insight into it because it's not enough to say an elk smells as good as you can see um, because we can't see through objects, but an elk can smell through objects. Yeah. I, I think that that's, that's really interesting. I, I do not believe in, in cover sense. 
but I, I do believe that your receptors for sensing a particular smell can fatigue. And that's why like if somebody gets sprayed by a skunk or, or whatever, by the time they get back to the house, they think it's over with, they can't smell it anymore. <laughs> um, but everybody else can, can, can sure smell it on them. Uh, and that might be an obscure example that only occurs to like kids in the West or something, but, um, but th that is how it works. So I, I don't know, that's a really provocative idea that they're actually getting fatigued, um, by that smoke and, and starting to rely on other senses more heavily. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, we, we hunted Idaho last year, we hunted Utah, uh, and they didn't seem to, to be as affected in Utah, but they were different than they'd been in years past, according to some of the guys we hunted with down there. Uh, they were definitely more call shy. And I really think it just had to do with that limiting their senses, especially their sense of smell that they rely on. It was just more limited than it had been, than, than what they felt comfortable relying on it with, so... Again, yeah. nothing scientific there, just more observational and uh, try, trying to rack my brain of why won't these elk come into our calls? And that was, uh, that was kind of what we came up with. Well, you can't have science without observation. So I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that that isn't scientific. Um, it isn't complete, but it, it's part of the scientific <laughs> process. Yeah. And we use science all the time. I, I've heard people talk about uh, like what what would you put in a time capsule to ensure that um, that the human race could survive uh, if we had to start from scratch all over again. And a lot of people say that the scientific method is one of the most powerful things that we could give somebody who had to start over. Um, so you know, have a question, develop a hypothesis, and then run your experiment and use a control in order to ensure that this experiment was an actual result, and then see if you can replicate it, draw a conclusion, and then take that information and build off of it. Like this, this is really, really important. And it's critical for how we've been able to actually learn. So I, I think that, that you are conducting science there, Corey, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna back you up on that one. Awesome. That's great. <laughs> hey, back to uh, back to something you mentioned on cover sense. Uh, I, I feel the exact same way. Uh, we were hunting in Arizona a few years ago. A friend had drawn a tag. Well, it's been several years now, but uh, he tagged out and there was a, another hunter camp nearby and he was having troubles finding elk and we didn't have tags, but we didn't, didn't fly out for two or three more days. So we went over and offered our services to, to help him find elk and maybe call him in. And we were walking up the hill and he pulls out a scent wafer and it was soaked in, I think it was cow in, in heat scent or something. And he put that wafer on the back of his hat, you know, just attached to a string and it's dangling there on the back of his hat. And he's sweating like crazy. And of course, going up the hill, we can smell that, that cow in estrus scent coming off of the wafer uh, because the wind's blowing right down at us. But as we get up close to him, he's sweating and he stinks like he's been out in the field for seven days sweating and hasn't showered. And we can still smell that even though he's got that dripping wafer on the back of his hat. And I just thought, you know what, for us as humans, we can detect when there's multiple smells. Yes, the most powerful one is the one that we detect first, and that's the strongest one. But 
we can certainly differentiate that, hey, there's two smells here. There, there's a skunk and there's a propane leak. You know, the, you can smell both of those things at the same time. And an elk is is that much more sensitive and they can absolutely, yeah, they smell a wafer that, that smells like, you know, it might be the best cow in heat scent that you could possibly put out there, but they can smell that, but they can also smell all the scent that's coming off of the, the platform that that wafer is sitting on as well. And they recognize, hey, there might be a cow in, in estrus up there, but there's also danger in the exact same place. I'm not going in. And so cover sense, I think if anything, they might buy you a little bit of, of an advantage um, as far as maybe an elk might walk five more yards into a shooting lane before he detects the danger. Uh, he might come 50 yards up the hill closer, but I really don't think a cover sense ever going to bring an elk right up to you where he's walking right up the hill, wind blowing right in his face and he forgets or doesn't even smell that there's danger there. Yeah. If, if you can learn one thing that is going to help you the most, it's, it's learning about scent. It's learning about wind. I, I would gladly go out with somebody that, that squawks like a sick goose if they understand the wind perfectly, you know, or as perfectly as somebody can understand something as chaotic as wind in the mountains. But yeah, I'm, I'm looking for a book on my bookshelf right now so that I can get the title right. But it's about hiking um, the Pacific Crest Trail. And it's, it's one of the best books I've ever read about getting your pack lighter, about what, what you should bring with you, the stuff that gets abandoned with, within the first couple weeks of, the, of that through hike, which is like 2,200 miles, if I remember correctly. So these folks are spending about six months um, at least out on this trail. And one of the, the lines in this book that I remember really distinctively is that they can tell when there's a weekend hiker out on the trail because they can smell them from a long ways away by their soap. So if once people have been out on the trail for a couple months, they're able to detect other humans from a long distance based on soap. And I think that that's really interesting. And, and that is one thing that, that I'll do because I'm not necessarily concerned about an elk smelling me. And I know that sounds crazy in this context, but uh, if they smell me, they smell me. What I'm more concerned about is how much scent I'm leaving behind because I have to come back and hunt this same spot day after day for an entire season. So I'm pretty cautious about how, how I go through these different areas. And I want to leave the smallest amount of scent behind um, so that I'm not polluting that area for the future. And, and that's one place where I will take one of the whitetail hunter steps and I'll use a, a scent free soap so that it doesn't have any perfumes or dyes or anything like that in it. Because I do believe leaving those scent molecules behind can keep an elk from continuing to use that area. Yeah, and you look at, you know, when we're calling in an elk, if you move up the ridge and you call from a location, a bull answers, and you're like, I don't have a setup here. If you turn and run back down the hill 40 yards, when that elk gets to the point that you are standing at, even if the thermals are coming down the hill and everything is perfect as far as the wind and the thermals, when he gets to that spot you are standing, he smells where you are standing. And he's going to turn and, and not come past that and most likely run the other direction. Uh, so you're exactly right. I mean, we do leave a footprint, a scent footprint there. And, and you know, I've, I've seen elk come across a hillside that I had walked across two hours before and they walk across it like nothing's there. They aren't detecting danger. I think they can tell if something, you know, has been there 
very recently or if it's been a while, even if they can still smell that danger, they know it's it's not an immediate threat right there. Uh, but yeah, the more that we can do, and I, I'm with you, you know, I'd never rely on cover sense for calling. That doesn't mean I go out there with gas on the bottom of my boots and traipse around the woods or anything. We're, we're definitely aware of the, the footprint we're leaving as far as our scent. Yeah. So there's, there's a, a scent trail that's coming off your body and that's skin cells and, and, you know, any kind of debris that's coming off of your body and that stays on the ground and smells for a while. And then there's a scent plume and that's sort of the, the gaseous stuff that's coming off of your body all the time, coming out of your breath, um, coming off your eyes, anything that's, that's exposed, even um, sweat as it's evaporating, which is the entire point of sweat. So you've got this, this like gas coming off of you all the time. And then you've got the, this breadcrumb trail coming off of you. Uh, an adjustment that I made a few years ago was instead of sneaking into tree stand locations with clients um, and trying to stay in the shade and stay in the trees, we would actually get pretty bold and walk across the openings in order to get in there because UV is what destroys that scent faster than anything. So rather than walking in through the shade where that scent that was coming off of our bodies was going to last for a longer amount of time, we decided to try walking across the openings, hoping that the UV would destroy that scent in the couple hours before, you know, it cooled off and the elk started moving around again. And that did seem to make a big difference for us. Yeah, absolutely. And that, like you said, I mean, there's a lot of things we can do uh, to minimize the, the breadcrumb we leave. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, when we're trying to hunt the elk, when we're actually in the setup hunting them, whether it's calling or sitting in a tree stand or whatever, it's usually that that scent cone that you know the like you mentioned the gases that are drifting in the thermals that that bite us you know if an elk happens to cross the exact trail we were on they can smell the breadcrumbs but for the most part they're going to circle downwind and look for those gases that are coming off in that that cone as it spreads out uh, across the environment there and and that's what they're really going to utilize their senses to find so Obeying the wind is so important, making sure that we're always downwind, making sure that uh, as an elk comes in, they're not going to be able to smell either where we walked or uh, smell us on the wind there. Well, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit and, and kind of throw you a curveball question. We have a handful of units here in Oregon that... Um, that are over the population man management objective by quite a lot, but they're also under the, the bull management objective. So we have, we have low bull escapement throughout the season. A, a lot of places there's like 10 bulls per hundred cows at the end of the season. And we'd like to see that in the teens, even as high as 20. And then we have some areas where we're trying to actually get to like 25 bulls per hundred cows, which is a, a really healthy number in my estimation. So we've got not enough bulls. We've got way too many cows. Let's say somebody's talked to a wildlife biologist and, and that bio says, hey, what we really need um, for the ecology of this area is to reduce our cow population. What are you going to do during this week of September that we're talking about if we're just going to go out there and try and kill a cow? You know, my philosophy on, on hunting cows, especially in that, you know, 15th of September through the end of September, I hunt them just like I hunt a bull. And if I'm going to use my calls, uh, I'm going to call to a bull and 
so many times I'm doing that. I've had cows come in first. Uh, they walk right by in the shooting lane. You know, how many times have we had got busted by a cow that came in before a bull? So if I'm hunting cows, I'm probably going to not call as aggressively, but I'm still going to use calls to locate. Uh, and then I'm going to set up and, and try to call elk in. And if I'm hunting a bull that has cows, there's a good chance that he's either going to push a cow through or a cow's going to come in first. Uh, they're, they're a herd animal. And so the cows are, they're interested in, in what's going on with the herd that's right there as well. Uh, with that being said, I know there are some states that allow for bait to be used. And I don't think there's any more effective or efficient way to shoot a cow than to sit in a tree stand over bait if that's, if that's allowed. So I think in Oregon, you're allowed to use salt. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, my dad was a, was an outfitter in Oregon for several years and that was a large percentage of his clientele, especially the first half of the season was those who just wanted to shoot an elk and they were more than happy to shoot a cow and almost, you know, it was almost a hundred percent on public land over the counter type hunts to shoot a cow from a tree stand over a, over a salt lick. And so, um, if I'm hunting the 13th through the 20th and hunting cows, I'm probably going to hunt them just like I would hunt a bull and, you know, maybe get a little bit short or stop a little bit short of setting up and trying to call them into my location, maybe get a little more dynamic and, and stay on the move and try to slip in as that bull is trying to round up his cows and hope that maybe he pushes one uh, across in front of me a little bit more of, you know, a shadowing technique where, you're using calls to locate him. Maybe you have a, a buddy behind you calling and he's just keeping the bull talking and keeping the bull active as you kind of, as the shooter get quiet and, and move in and look for an opportunity. And like, like you said, my experience in Oregon has been huge herds of cows, you know, 40, 50, 60, a hundred cows with one herd bull. Uh, and that's pretty rare in, in a lot of places in Idaho you know, I don't even look at a unit unless it has at least 20 bulls per hundred cows. And there are several units that have 30 to, to 40 bulls per hundred cows. Uh, and it changes the way that you hunt them. You can be a lot more aggressive with the calling. The bulls are far more uh, ready to just throw down at the drop of a hat and come fight another bull because there are so many bulls and they have to actively protect the, the few cows they have. Whereas you get into a place uh, that has... 10 bulls per hundred cows and is over objective on total population. There are hundreds and hundreds of cows there and only a handful of herd bulls that are, that are able to tend to them and, and gather them up. So it changes the dynamics of how you can hunt. It changes the, the behavior of the elk uh, in all of those phases. You know, the week that we talked the 13th through the 20th here, uh, they're looking for the cows they're establishing dominance, but they might not be quite as aggressive that we uh, in in that specific area you're talking about as they will be in an area where there's only 100 elk total and the bull to cow ratio is 40 per 100. They're going to have to work a little bit harder to establish dominance. They're going to have to work a little harder to to build a harem that they feel comfortable going into the rut with, whereas maybe in some of those areas in Oregon, it's a matter of just showing up and taking over a hundred cows that are already gathered up there in that herd and very little competition to come in and, and push them around. So it might be a little harder to, uh, to use the calls to get them to come to you because they're already set and established and have no reason to try to get more. Yeah. And something that I really just want people to consider here, 
is that, you know, we all have our own, our own goals and our own objectives. But if we're looking at this from an aspect of hunting as conservation, I really encourage you to talk to your biologist and say, hey, if I have the option, which elk benefits the herd the most for me to take? And in, in some areas, and not just Oregon exclusively, but, you know, depending on the herd dynamics, oftentimes that will be a cow. And if that's the case, I encourage you to try it because hunting a cow during archery season is tough. I get way more opportunities at bulls than I get at cows. Yep, absolutely. And cows are the ones that are, they keep their senses during the month of September. You know, they, they don't uh, forget that safety and survival is number one. Whereas a bull, he hears a sweet cow sound or somebody challenges him and gets in his face and he'll lose his senses for a little bit to go in because that's just his natural drive right then. That's his number one priority. Those cows are always on full alert. They very, very rarely ever drop their guard. And as you're hunting them, it's usually the cows that, you know, as you're hunting bulls, it's usually the cows that bust you as you're trying to get close to that bull. So if we're looking at hunting bedding areas during this week, is there going to be a difference in your approach if say you're on a backcountry backpack hunt where your mobility is limited to a specific area versus if you're hunting from a vehicle and you can hit new areas day after day? Again, it really depends on, on the area you're hunting and the demographics, the, the uh, makeup of the herd. Uh, for where I hunt in Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, uh, I get pretty aggressive in those bedding areas and I don't worry too much. And we've had them, you know, we'll blow them out and three hours later, they're back in the exact same place bedded there. Uh, just because I don't think they have the same pressure. If you're hunting a highly pressured area and they, you go in and bust them out of their bedding area, they know as they take off running, they're probably going to encounter more danger. And so they're probably going to be more apt to completely leave that area and go find a, a backup safety area. Whereas where we're hunting, you know, we're talking a handful of elk, just we get in a draw where there's a herd bull and maybe two satellite bulls and six cows. And if we get in their bedding area and bump them, they might run over the ridge 300 yards and settle right back down on the next north face uh, and then be right back the next morning in the same place. So I don't worry too much about busting them out of, out of those areas. Uh, the other thing is, you know, I, I really think that hunting in a bedding area, not particularly because it's a bedding area, but because of the elk's behavior in that bedding area and the time of the day that you're hunting them, uh, is so much more efficient than trying to follow them up a mountain and get them to turn around as they're following cows or try to go and, and distract them while they're actively feeding or going to water. Uh, it's just so much more efficient hunting them in those bedding areas that I really only need a couple opportunities usually to to get a shot at one. And so I'm more willing to take a, a chance there that if I bust them out, I'm going to find another one. I'll go find another little group of those elk in a bedding area and hunt them. And after two or three times of finding those elk and hunting them there, uh, I've usually got a, got a load on the pack frame heading back out to the trailhead. Yep. That is a good point. And, and there is a time to go all in and say, you know what, if this doesn't work out, it's over with, but this is my best chance for it to work out. So I'm going to go for it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's honestly, I don't do a whole lot of backcountry hunting anymore for a couple of reasons. Um, that being one of them, I just, I want to find, I want to stay mobile and I want to find a bull that's ready that day to die. You know, that's fired up, 
And I, I might backpack into an area eight or nine miles and get back in there. And whether there's another camp set up in there, whether there's a pack of wolves in there, whether there's no other bulls and that bull just has his cows to himself. And now another elk shows up bugling and he's like, I, you know, we're going to move over the ridge here and, and avoid this. Uh, it just, it seems to lock you in and I, I really don't want to be locked in. I want to go and find an elk every day that's ready. And by staying mobile, I'm able to do that. And that does free me up to be able to hunt bedding areas a little more. If I go in and bust one out, I'm, I've got a backup area. I'm going to that evening or the next morning uh, that might be somewhere completely different and not even worried about those elk that I busted out and whether they come back the next morning or whether it's three days later or not, I'm hunting different elk the next day. What time of day do you start hunting? Uh, you know, we're usually, I mean, I, I like the morning for sure. I like first thing at daylight, if you can catch the elk before they, before they leave their feeding and watering area and start heading to their bedding, uh, that can be super productive. Once they get on the move, you know, the, after 30 or 30 minutes or an hour after daylight, they'll get on the move, heading to their bedding area. That can be a tough time to, to hunt them because you're trying to get a bull to turn around and come back to you as his cows are moving up the mountain doesn't want to be separated from them. He doesn't want to take a chance of, of losing them or getting beat up by another bull and have another other bull take them. So he's usually on the follow at that point. Uh, and then they get to their bedding area. And, and like you'd mentioned earlier, letting them settle down and letting the thermals kind of become more consistent. That's, that's a time that I really like to hunt them. Uh, you know, and we'll hunt all day. There's, there's no going back to camp and having a nap. We carry our full day's worth of food with us and water and we stay on the mountain and sometimes there's a nap on the mountain as we let the thermals kind of settle down or you know we bust an elk out of a of a bedding area and there's nothing else bugling right there we'll hunker down for an hour or two and then get up and try to go locate another one uh, but we're hunting daylight till dark and usually half hour before daylight we're we're heading into the area we want to be in and uh, we usually hunt right up till dark. And that sometimes means a two or three hour hike after dark, uh, getting back down to either camp or the trailhead. A, a nap on the hill is one of the, the deadliest techniques that I have. That, <laughs> that has turned up a, a lot of elk for me. And I think part of it is that uh, I move around too much and I think almost everybody does. But uh, yeah, I've, for me, if, if I lay down at 10 o'clock in the morning and, uh, and sleep for an hour and then get up and, and sit there and eat a fruit snack or something, boy, a lot of times I'll hear an elk that, you know, had I just sat there, I would have gotten impatient and left. But now I know that that elk is there. He's settled down. He's bugling from his bed. That's a really actionable elk. And, and something that I can, I can work with really well. It's also a luxury that I don't necessarily have when I'm guiding, but when I'm hunting on my own, I am for sure going to stay out there. And especially if there's a lot of moon, boy, noon during a full moon can be absolutely magical. Yep. No, and you, you nailed it. We say one o'clock, but you're Pacific time. We're mountain standard time. So <laughs> we're talking the exact same time there. Cause one o'clock is our, our magic hour. Uh, and yeah, it's just one of those things that I've been told, I, I can't tell you how many thousands of elk I've walked by in the mountains because I'm the same. I'm impatient, um, but I, I have a goal of finding that one elk. I want an elk that's fired up, that's bugling. I don't want to wait there for an hour to get one little peep out of him. 
that bull's going to be a lot harder to call in than the bull that's over the ridge that's bugling on his own. And so, you know, I do walk by elk. I get impatient. But like you said, when things when, when the when things get really tough and elk just aren't talking, but we're seeing sign, I have to adapt. I have to change that aggressive calling only philosophy. And sometimes we'll sit and let out a few cow calls and fall asleep for 15 minutes, wake up and eat some trail mix and let out a few more cow calls and, you know, whatever it is. But when we get patient, uh, it, it's amazing how many elk will actually come out of the woodwork sometimes as you're, as you patiently wait for them. Okay, sir. Last question. Um, it's, it's the last day of our hunt. It's the 20th. We've, we've got to pack it up tonight and we're driving home tomorrow, going back to our life. It's we're, we're hitting the, the panic button. It's desperation mode. What's the trick we're going to pull out of our bag on this last day for us to hunt elk this year? Man, I've been there so many times that last day of the hunt, I think uh, the last three days I start getting, and you mentioned uh, desperation and it, it almost does feel like that. Um, the thing to remember is I've got my, my effective range as an archery hunter. And I can't, I can't change that. You know, the last day I'm not going to be lobbing 90 yard shots at an elk, just trying to fill a tag. So that's, that's not an option. Um, I'm going to go to the area that I've hunted uh, in the last week where I know there are elk. I'm not going to take a chance on the last day. I'm going to go into an area. I'm going to say, Hey, on Tuesday, we had elk bugling up here. We haven't been back there since we know they're there or Last night at dark, a bull was bugling. We've got to go and hunt that bull. I'm not, I'm not relying on an unproven area on that last day. Um, the time to find elk is over. Now I've got to, I've got to only hunt them on that last day. Uh, the 20th, I'm getting aggressive. I mean, I'm getting, I'm finding an elk. I will be super mobile that day. My hiking is two times as fast as it's been all week. Uh, I'm going to cover as much country as I can and find that one elk that I know I'm going to be the most efficient uh, at hunting that day. And it's usually going to be one that is uh, incredibly vocal, hopefully on its own. I'll uh, probably stay out the whole night before covering as much country as I can, whether that's on road or hiking ridges, just trying to find a bull that's fired up so that I can be on him first thing in the morning. I think that's really great advice. And I especially appreciate you bringing up that, just because it's the last day doesn't mean you can sudden, suddenly shoot farther than you could on the first day. In reality, <laughs> you probably need to shoot an even shorter distance because you're you're fatigued, you're stressed, um, you're emotionally tired as well. Uh, you're not at full capability. So just because you can stand there on your home archery course and burn it down at 60 yards does not mean that now is the time to take that shot on, a, on an elk when you know, you're full of all the the chemicals in your body that are are actually limiting your capabilities rather than improving them yeah I, mean, I see it on social media quite often that well it came down to the last day so i was willing to to fling an arrow at 80 yards or you know last day i'm shooting you know if it's in sight and it's just that's a horrible horrible mindset to get into and like you said uh i'm probably less willing to take a, a farther shot on the last day than I would be on the first day. I uh, just, you know, confidence has dropped a bit. I'm, I'm more tired. Uh, I realize, you know, at that point that uh, I have to make a good shot. 
I don't get an extra day to track or, you know, if, if it, uh, I just, I want to make sure it's a clean kill. And so that means that I've got to tighten up a little bit sometimes. And I think it's so important that people understand what their effective range is, whether that's with a rifle or a bow or, or any weapon and never compromise that for any, you know, no matter how big the bowl is, what well, was a 400 inch bowl, there's no way I wasn't going to shoot at it doesn't matter you know you know your effective range you've established that through months of practicing um, that's got to be a, a hard stop yep i agree and it takes a lot of courage to stick to that but you'll thank yourself in the long run i promise can i share a story yes sir please do <laughs> so along that my son isaac who uh, just graduated high school when he was 12, he wanted to shoot an elk with his bow and he was shooting about 50 pounds. And I told him 30 yards was the max. And that was based on him shooting all summer at 30 yards. He could hit, you know, a baseball sized group every single time. No question asked. When he got out to 40, it spread out quite a bit. And you could tell that, you know, 30 was his effective range. And I set him up. We had a bull bugle and set him up out in front of me, told him, you know, everything he'd been been through the process, you range something, you get set up, you get your arrow on, you draw when the elk comes in, when his head's hidden. And I see this bull coming up the hill and he comes right up in front of Isaac and stops broadside and Isaac's at full draw. And I'm like, shoot, shoot, come on, shoot. And I'm 30 or 40 yards behind him and he's not shooting. And eventually the bull realizes, hey, there were calls coming from here. I don't see anything. There must be danger and turns and runs down the hill. So I go down there. I'm like, why did you not shoot? It's like, dad, he only had two more yards to come. He was at 32. And if he would have just taken two more steps, I had him at 30. And I'm looking, I'm saying, wasn't he right by that tree, that burned tree over there? And he's like, yeah, he was standing right beside it. I'm like, Isaac, that can't be 20 yards to that tree. How, how are you getting 32? And he smacked himself in the forehead. And he's like, dad, I ranged from back up there where I was set up the first time and I didn't like my shooting lane. So I moved down the hill 12 or 15 yards and forgot to rearrange. And I just had 32 yards to that tree in my mind. When he came and stood by it, I was waiting for him to take two more steps. And, you know, as disappointed as I was, because it was a big six point, um, he was disappointed in kicking himself. But I was incredibly proud because he wasn't willing to compromise even two yards as a 12 year old and uh, take a shot at an elk that you know was he thought was two yards farther than his effective range. Well, I'm really proud of him for that too. And uh, and good on you for for teaching him to have that kind of respect, both for himself and for you and, and for the animal. I think that's that's tremendous. We need more people like Isaac. Yep, no, and it, it all comes down to, to education. You know, some of us are fortunate to have uh, parents who have taught us how to hunt and passed on ethics and that some of us you know have to learn the hard way sometimes and then some of us you know we have mentors or friends that we hunt with that have that and i think it's just it's a responsibility you have whether we're hunting with our children whether we're hunting with somebody who's never hunted before uh, to to pass that on and just remind them that hey we love these animals that's why we're hunters i mean we don't hunt because we want to kill them and we aren't concerned about wounding them we, uh, we want to be effective. We want them to die a very humane death. And we realize that we have a job as conservationists and hunters. And I think it's super important that we, we share that message and pass it on with those we hunt with and come in contact with. A hundred percent. Well, if, if for some reason people make it through the season and they're not able to connect on an elk, I cannot encourage them enough 
to enroll in the University of Elk Hunting and take the Elk 101 course. Hunting is my profession and elk is my specialty. And I've taken your course three times. I love it. And the first time that I took it, I'd hunted elk for over 20 years. And I cannot tell you how important it is to have all this information consolidated into classes that that really bring it together and help you connect things that you might not have connected on your own because Corey is a very analytical person and he is able to take information and put it into consolidated packets and then present it in a way that helps you make sense of the things that you've already experienced and then give you a baseline to understand what's actually happening as you're out on the hill. So I can't thank you enough for putting that course together. And it's, it's been tremendously beneficial for me. I highly encourage my clients to take it. I highly encourage my guides to take it. Like I said, I've, I've taken it multiple times now and it's, it's awesome. So thank you. I greatly appreciate that. And that, you know, that was the goal from the beginning. I'm not a better elk hunter than, than anybody else. Um, I've been fortunate and blessed to grow up in elk country and have a lot of experiences. Most of them, uh, resulting in failure, and that's how we learn best. Uh, but I do feel that that um, being an engineer, I do analyze things, uh, and then hopefully try to explain them in a way that's that's understandable. You know, in layman's terms, for those who have never hunted elk before, uh, or even like I said, for somebody experienced in it, there's there's experiences that I've had that I hope other people can learn from, and I'm hungry just like anybody else to to learn from others and from other experiences that maybe I haven't had so that was the goal behind it and uh it's it's very rewarding to hear people like yourself that gain even a little bit of of uh, what they feel will be a benefit to them as an elk hunter and I appreciate the the very kind words there where else can people follow what you have going on or or access some other tools that will help them be more effective as hunters yeah, just uh, our website, elk101.com. There's a, a lot of information there outside of just the online course. Uh, there's videos and uh, all sorts of articles, and we've got a forum on there and everything. Uh, our YouTube channel is just elk101, and if you go there, we've got, I think, 2007 or 2008, we started videoing hunts. Uh, we've got a lot of that stuff there, a lot of educational things uh, there on YouTube. And then uh, Instagram uh, is probably more active than our Facebook, but we've got both uh, just Elk 101 uh, on Facebook and Instagram. And if you want the easy button, if you look at this podcast description, wherever you're um, listening to this podcast, there's going to be some links down at the bottom of it and just click on those and it'll take you to all the stuff that Corey was just talking about. Well, Corey, thank you very much. I wish you all the luck in the world this uh, this elk season, both for yourself as a hunter and then for all the people that you end up helping out. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was fun having you at the Hunter Games. That was really cool. Uh, what do you feel like was? I know I told you that I was done asking questions, but what do you feel like was your your biggest <laughs> learning point um, or takeaway from the Hunter Games? You know, for me, it was something I already knew and didn't realize that it applied to rifle as well. But uh, as an archery hunter, when you draw back the bow and put the pin on the target, that pin has to settle and it has to, you know, it's not necessarily locked locked in there. It can move a little bit, 
but the the settling of that pin and then the follow through holding that pin there after the shot is so critical to accuracy in in archery and i think for me i just didn't realize that i knew it but didn't realize how important it was for rifle uh you know it's always been my mentality has been put the crosshairs on it and pull the trigger and the second you pull the trigger it's over the bullet's so fast that it's you know coming out of there and it's on its way to the target and uh, i learned that there is an absolute necessity to be locked in with the crosshairs on the target and squeeze the trigger which we all know but then you know that follow-through is just so important you can't be pulling your head up and looking to see where you're hitting or, or listening for contact on the steel uh, and that's really what hurt me especially the first day was i was just getting on and, and almost shotgunning the target hey the crosshairs are there it's a rifle pull the trigger and move on and uh, struggled quite a bit on some of those challenging realistic hunting situation shots yeah sh shooting fundamentals or shooting fundamentals whether it's a a slingshot or an atlatl or a rifle or a recurve or a compound the the fundamentals remain constant and one of the reasons that i am such an advocate of shooting interdisciplinary is that each one of those will make you better at all of the other ones um and if if i see a guy who shoots pistol rifle shotgun longbow compound bow I'm pretty confident that that individual is going to be more capable with any one of those than somebody who only shoots the one. Yeah. And even beyond shooting sports, I mean, you look at athletics or anything where you're trying to consistently, you know, throw a ball into the same location or shoot a ball into the same location. It's the exact same process. You know, there's a focus, uh, there's a, there's an aiming, there is a, uh, follow through and the form and everything that goes into it. I coach high school basketball and you know I tell them all the time when you're on the free throw line I want you to always say these three words in your mind. You always say focus, form, follow through and if you'll do that your shot's going to be a lot more accurate and my son uh, finished up his eighth grade year this year and in Babe Ruth he played uh, pitcher and teaching him the mechanics of pitching was the exact same the focus the form the follow-through you know and it's just it's the same if you want a projectile to go to a certain area consistently uh, those are very important steps well i'm going to go tell myself that on my archery range here in a couple minutes thank you very much corey this is invaluable information um and honestly it's just good to be able to spend an hour talking with you i really appreciate your time Likewise, I appreciate the invite, James, and it's always a, a pleasure to get to chat with you. All righty, sir. Good luck this year. Thanks. You too. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley Thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee.
Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.